Welcome to America This Week with John Gersma and Libby Rodney. We are with the Harris Poll. Hey, Libby, how are you doing? Good, John. How are you doing? I'm good. We've got a lot to cover this week. Uh, for those that are new uh, to our podcast, we basically go into the field uh, every weekend and we survey a representative sample of Americans across um, a range of different polling ideas. And we take ideas for polls from our listeners, uh, as well as the stuff that sort of sparks our interest. And uh, we kind of discuss it. And that's what we're going to do today. Libby, we've got four stories, right? Yeah, we have four stories. Um, you know, we're in wave 118. Can you believe it? <laughs> and, um, you know, usually we have a very optimistic take on kind of everything. And and we will we promise to end this show with, uh, you know, signals of hope. But honestly, what we focus on is overall the idea of safety and how society is reacting to safety. So we have um, the first story is about the rise of random acts of violence and how Americans are kind of thinking about that and, and reacting mm -hmm. to it and responding to it. The second story is about how black Americans still feel unsafe um, and they are climbing an un uphill battle in terms of just equity in, in society overall. The third story is about how parents feel like they have no safety net and ultimately this is leave, leaving them pretty dazed. And then the fourth story is about how safety have, has left the stock market and how um, people are reacting, especially those in their retirement years. So John, I don't know, you want to kick it off into our, our <laughs> yeah. theme of safety? <laughs> well, yeah, that's good. And I think what's interesting as we get into this conversation is some of the potential policy reactions that always come uh, from from troubled times like this. But yeah, let's start with random acts of violence. Uh, obviously, of no uh, surprise across America in the wake of the tragedies uh, over the past three weeks in, in Buffalo, Uvalde, and now uh, as recently as Tulsa. Uh, yesterday, in our polling over the weekend, 84% of Americans are concerned about crime rates and random act of violence. We ask those questions separately. Um, they are literally the number two and number three concerns of Americans this week, just behind economy uh, and jobs at 88%, and that ever-present political divisiveness at 76%, which is another persistent anxiety. I mean, Libby, inside the numbers, you see that women are uh, about almost 10 points more concerned at 88% about random acts of violence as are older Americans. So there's a sort of a significant difference between boomers at 92% and Gen Z at 67% with millennials sort of somewhere in the middle, right? About eight and 10, but, but these numbers are high across all, all demos. Interestingly also, we found something that, that Republicans and Democrats can agree on. Both 86% of Democrats and 85% of Republicans are concerned uh, about uh, these random acts of violence as our parents and non-parents. And I think, yeah, I just wanted to put this in perspective. And we looked also at our Harvard-Harris poll that was fielded before Uvalde. This is now um, about two weeks old. We do a monthly poll with Harvard. And this is of American voters, and six in 10 believe that gun violence in the US uh, is actually getting worse. And what I think is really important in that is that 41% cite the uh, easy to access to guns is really the driver, much more so than mental illness at 29%. So that is really a, a sort of a two to one difference in a sort of 
political narrative that sort of suggests uh, the opposite. And so I thought I thought that was interesting, Libby. And then also, quite hopefully, maybe in this kind of segues to policy, three quarters of Americans would support raising the minimum age to purchase a gun to 21. Um, with three, uh, almost six and 10, 58% support reimposing the assault rifle ban. So, I mean, Libby, what has been the reaction and what have you seen in, in your work in, in terms of, of what you're seeing and reading for, on the policy front from, from leaders across the country? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's it's really interesting. I mean, there has been an, a global outcry of, of support um, from leaders globally. So everyone from, you know, the French president to um, mm-hmm. Justin Perdue to every, everyone's kind of reaching out and saying like, oh, America, we're suffering with you. We feel this. And then mm-hmm. internally, it's like we still can't get aligned. Like there's still some sort of misalignment happening um, around uh, in the in the political frame. Um, and I think like what's interesting is this idea of like what in New York, Mayor Adams, Eric Adams is just tapping into a gun violence SAR, um, mm. you know, and is is like is not battling it with policy necessarily, but is battling it with like, let's arm up. Or for example, um, there's this legislation that passed that teachers can now um, arm up in classrooms. And so this idea that like we're all racing to the guns is is probably not the soundest idea, especially when you look at other um, leading countries and, and how they're dealing with these these gun issues. Um, and they're having the same mental health issues that we're having. They're having the same detachment, disillusionment. This is mm. not these aren't these aren't things that all countries are kind of dealing with these things, yet we seem to be dealing with it on a unique basis based on our ability to access guns. Um, but I thought it was really interesting. The Wall Street Journal recently featured an article where um, this victim, this woman of a New York subway mass shooting actually sued um, the gun maker Glock. And so mm-hmm. a lot of people roll their eyes at you know, Americans suing companies over things that they're not involved for, but actually it can change the way that people perceive policy and it can change the way that big private businesses do business in America. So sometimes that litigation actually impacts how people come to market. Um, So there's maybe there's some hope there. If we can't get policy change, we'll get, you know, companies deciding to do the right things in terms of arms trafficking and education. Absolutely. And, you know, to add to the, the other fears that we've seen in addition to, to violence, we came across uh, last week uh, the, the two-year anniversary of, of the murder of George Floyd. And we went back into, into, the, into the field and we spent some time working with uh, an interesting think tank that's affiliated with Forbes, uh, Forbes and the culture. And we, and we partnered on this survey and we found that even, you know, with all the hope that we had, uh, for for profound change two years ago, when you talk to Black Americans, um, you know now, uh, pretty much very little has changed in, in their viewpoint. Seven out of ten Black Americans told us that they feel stressed by discrimination in wealth building, and some of the other stressors that they're feeling uh, as we get into the summer include uh, the effects of racism on their mental health. Nearly two thirds at sixty three percent. Uh, enduring microaggressions in daily life, six in 10 Black Americans 
and then the ever-present concern of potential interactions with law enforcement at, at 60%, and lastly, workplace discrimination at 60%. Um, obviously, this height stress gets heightened with parents. Parents with uh, uh, black parents with children under 18 were more often stressed about their kids' safety uh, at 50% than for themselves at 44%, and and it goes on and on. What what we wanted to focus maybe here on Libby was the response of corporations two years ago. So one analysis found that two thirds of the S&P 500 companies made supportive statements uh, in the wake of, of the murder of George Floyd uh, in support of Black Lives Matter. But in our new data, nine out of 10 black Americans believe companies should have a role in advancing racial equality for their current black employees. And when we asked them to rate their companies on their racial equity work over the last two years, just under half say that these companies have done a good job. What do you make of those numbers? Yeah, I mean, I think it it all spills into actual action. I mean, the work that we did around the future majority, which was kind of some work around, um, you know, understanding the viewpoint of people of color and and understanding if we're actually moving the needle corporations, there was a clear and fundamental understanding that the black squares on social media, the, the elements of support are just not enough and they're not gonna cut it anymore. And so I think what we've heard from being in the field is just that black Americans, um, people of color, um, they want, to see what are your long-term commitments to their community. They want to understand what are your long-term value statements to their community, and then how are you going to go about and enacting that. And I don't think corporations have, I think corporations are putting, you know, to give people the benefit of the doubt, I think they're putting their ducks in a row and working to get there, but they have not made those big, bold vision statements around how are they going to, change impact um and and rise up the community in in which they operate like what is their point of good in operating in the black community and how are they going to bring equity and design work into those fields um to do that you know what after after those statements <clears throat> excuse me and this data you know we did that analysis libby uh, for the milken institute and the milken harris poll listening project and we found that 75 percent of businesses said that they were actively working on their DEI initiatives, but only 25% of employees said that they'd seen any progress. It really feels like, you know, what corporations are, are committed to, to your point on, on Black Americans, this feels like just a, a such a fundamental focus right now if you wanted to advance your DEI, right? Yeah, and, you know, I think you could look at that data and be, you know, you could be, um, put out by it. You could say like, oh, mm -hmm. wow, what, what, what strong gap. But I think it's also like, hey, look, 75% of corporations are trying to do something and they're trying to figure it out. And so that change hopefully will be seen. And I love the idea that we're tracking this because it brings transparency back into the boardroom and it brings it back to, okay, have you made any changes? And we have to keep doing this year over year until we start to see the shifts until we start to really hold these numbers and get accountable about these numbers. So the fact that we're tracking this actually gives me hope. Um, it's just that we need to have more action against it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've, our colleague Dami Rosano's uh, led a really interesting study on uh, black equity in the workplace that we'll put into the show notes. But you've also found um, this sort of safety issue and stress extending to parents, right? Yeah, absolutely. And this is some of the latest report from the APA and the Harris poll that we did in 2022, uh, which is a Stress in America report. And so there's always fabulous findings from Stress in America because <laughs> if one thing that stayed consistent about being an American, it's that we have a lot of stress and anxiety <laughs> and it continues to increase. Um, but American parents, like this, uh, as an American parent, this is the re report I have been waiting for. Um, <laughs> American parents were more likely, and this is comparison to those who aren't parents right now with kids, um, to list money at 80%, the economy at 77%, and housing costs at 72% as significant sources of stress. So just as trifecta of stress kind of weighing down on parents' shoulder. They're also more likely to say that the pandemic is a daily stressor. And this, you might say, oh, well, when was this research taken? Well, it was March 2022. So the idea that the pandemic is over for some is still not true and applicable to parents. Parents are still trying to manage their children's health. They're still trying to manage school closures. Um, in fact, Parents are more likely to feel that the past two years of the pandemic have been a blur at 72% versus 59% of non-parents. So there's just a lot of like, what is going on? Um, and then parents also say that disruptions to the uncertainty surrounding school and daycare are still contributing to their uh, stress at about 72%. Um, they're also more likely to have noted that their mental health has wor worsened over the pandemic at 37%, so almost four in 10 parents, and that they could have used a lot more emotional support over the last two years at 31% versus 16% of the total population. So what you're hearing is they they don't feel like they've been seen and heard in that way and supported. Um, but the things that mostly concern them, that they're expressing concern about, um, is their children's developmental losses, um, which include their social life, their academic development, their emotional health, their cognitive development, and their physical health. So they're just worried in a lot of ways for their children. And at the same time, they have to deal with their kids' emotional mental state, right? And that's why we talked about safety as, as a topic this week, because kids have question about, you know, seeing the war on TikTok, about mm -hmm. sadness, about fear and anger, about random acts of violence. All of these things are impacting their kids and it's showing up at the dinner table, it's showing up at bath time, it's showing up in all these ways. And so I think, you know, that existential crisis stack that we talk about a lot, John, is really mm -hmm. impacting parents because they have to navigate it on a one-to-one -one level with, with a small child who is developing their brain, their outlook on the world, and you inherently don't want that to be a dark outlook. So you have to figure out creative ways to, to express what's really happening and the change we're seeing. How do you feel about that as a parent of yourself, of a, of a college-age student? I share exactly your, your points. And I, I think this is gonna be fundamental fascinating midterm election fodder you know are mm -hmm. there going to be candidates that are that are going to come and say hey this has been enough you know as you described we have these stacked crises they're not only stacked they're sustained right mm -hmm. so this is sort of this continual 
sort of amplification of of one thing leading to the other and at what point as we talked as you talked about with our our friends at the at the American Psychological Association I mean these are experts psychiatrists and psychologists that are analyzing our Harris data and and you're really seeing sort of breaking points uh, with people in terms of their anxiety so I'm I'm super interested to see you know is there an emergent hope candidate is there an emergent someone that that tries to put some of this into context or you know as you described earlier with with um you know we talked about the gun the gun work some really interesting small policy legislation that's happening in in california we'll attach that to the show notes also where they describe their approach to um to gun control is basically layers of swiss cheese meaning that it's not going to be perfect but they're they're doing a better job of making people feel more safe, and I think that's going to be the big win here. Is how do you not fix all these problems? Because I think they're going to take a long time, and they're highly interrelated and intricate. But you know, how do you just start to give people a, a, a tipping point of hope to start to feel that that things are are turning in a different direction? Yeah, that that seems like a really key point because we constantly see from our data in the field that people feel like things are kind of out of control and turning in the wrong direction. So just every little point that you can get to make people start to feel like there's this other direction that we could turn towards is, is, is a really great point, John. Um, and it's, it's a really, it's a, something we should almost gravitate to and, and showcase, right? So that we can help that tipping point push over. Absolutely. And yet it's so hard to to feel like you're going to get there when we see what's also happening. Our sort of fourth uh, <laughs> sort of part of this uh, safety uh, quad quadrant of, of challenges is the, the money shocks in the marketplace. And most notably, I, I, I'm feeling, I don't know, Libby, if you're doing this, I think I'm just going to turn off Twitter or just delete it for a while. <laughs> it's like yesterday I got, you know, the, the tweet about Jamie Dimon saying there's a hurricane coming for the economy and you better brace yourself. I'm like, aren't we already in the hurricane? Um, but apparently not. But one of the things that we see in all the Harris data is that the economy energy prices, inflation, like these things become the focal points. Now, clearly the, the crime and, and the violence has, has risen to, to those levels right now, given what's happening in the country, but it's always the economy. And um, we see this in this brand new study that, that we conducted uh, with Edward Jones uh, that was covered in the Wall Street Journal. And we found that, that when you're thinking about inflation and stock market volatility, you also got to talk to retirees and how they're thinking about altering their financial planning. And so there's, I think, some interesting reactions here about how people are, are actually more agile and adaptive than, than we would have thought. Um, one of the things that we see is that 63% of retirees in our, our survey, and it's very robust, it's 11,000 um, <laughs> respondents in North America, um, they've said that they have now have to make some financial course corrections including 41% that say they often worry about outliving their money, especially given you know today's volatility. Um, what I thought was interesting though, is how they're taking action, right? Six in 10, almost 59% of retirees and those pre-retirees that are sort of inside five years of retiring say that their ideal retirement actually isn't just sort of, you know, lounging on a beach somewhere, it's actually working in some form. Um, including cycling in and out of work, 
uh, where one in five say they're going to do that, uh, or 22% working part-time, or even 18% working full-time. So I don't know, Libby, it's kind of interesting, right? You know, what does the future of retirement look like? And it feels like it's going to have as much flexibility potentially as is hybrid work. Yeah, and, and I think we keep seeing this in study after study in kind of different variations, but boomers are really saying, hey, we want to we wanna reimagine this. Um, and honestly, it makes sense that the, you might want to reimagine this when the, the market is volatile and get back in there. But there's a lot of opportunities to do so, right? There's remote working and more hybrid working. There's just different structures in which um, the boomer workforce uh, can engage. And so I think, you know, especially amongst a talent shortage, it's really behooves companies to figure out how to bring this workforce that's saying, we don't want to retire. We want to cycle in. We want to cycle out. We want different kind of opportunities to figure out ways to use them and leverage that talent. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the last sort of point on, on this agility narrative is what's happening with overall U.S. adults. And, uh, you know, we saw in another study that was um, conducted with uh, Northwestern Mutual and something that that we provided to CNBC, found that 60% of U.S. adults say the pandemic has been highly disruptive to their finances. But, but Libby, get this, the average amount of personal savings has dropped 15% from $73,000 in America in 2021 to 62,000 in 2022. And that is really the, the, the stark challenge. But what was interesting uh, in the data, is that nearly half, 48%, said they've been able to adapt to their new circumstances. And nearly three quarters say that they've adopted better financial habits like spending less, tackling debt, uh, and even some at 17% saying um, that they're um, regularly revisiting their financial plans. So it feels like vigilance is the operative word. And it's also something, Libby, we've seen in our data around selective spending, right? Less spending in the home, more focus on a little bit of FOMO, YOLO, spending on experiences and vacations, but it feels like Americans overall are trying to be more strategic. Yeah, and I think that there was a lot of um, financial health lessons learned during the pandemic. There was kind of space to, A, uh, accumulate a little bit more of personal savings. So I'm not surprised that things have dropped as people have kind of gone back out into the market. Um, but people, you know, have created better financial health just understandings. They had time to sit down and look at where's money coming in, where's it coming out, what do I value, what do I prioritize? And so I think in that way, we're a much healthier nation because of it. I think the thing to watch out for is like when um, people of lower income, when they don't have any support left or something happens to their job and they kind of get into a sticky place where um, inflation really hits them much harder than the average American because they don't have any uh, ability to mm -hmm. increase their budget around around goods, products, and and services in that way. Absolutely, Libby. What have we got on on deck for next week? What are we thinking about in terms of different polling? Yeah, I mean, I think next week we're going to cover um, ageism in the workforce. Mm -hmm. We want to cover um, Elon Musk and his kind of latest 
latest quote where he was, you know, he's like a minimum of 40 hours in the work week. And, and what does that really represent? But not only for talent, but what does it represent to the Tesla brand? And is it going to do any brand damage there? Um, and, you know, I think also we'll cover um, where tourism is going, maybe in the, the cannabis cannabis industry and, and how we're changing that. And maybe a little look at pride too for the coming weeks. Absolutely. Um, Great. Absolutely on our radar. Awesome. Well, listen, for America This Week, this is John Garzma and Libby Rodney. Libby, it's always so good to talk to you. Absolutely. You too, John. Have a great weekend. All right. See you next time. Bye.